God's Word in Ephesians 4, beginning of verse 25, says, Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. Lord, as we just sang, would you speak to us? Lord, these are just words of a man, but trying to convey your words. So would you speak through these fallible words, your infallible message to us? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm not sure if you've ever been flipping through the TV channels, or maybe you went there purposefully, and came across the world's strongest man competition. These beasts of men pick up things like 350-pound stones and set them on top of pillars. They pull buses. They carry hollowed-out cars. And I once saw a man deadlift 1,100 pounds. These men are incredibly strong. Yet notice what Proverbs 16.32 says, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. You know, the world's strongest man may not be able to control their anger. We all know how hard it is to control our anger. We promise ourselves, this time, I'm going to talk to that person and stay in control. And you're only a minute or two in, and they've pushed all your buttons, and the steam is coming out your ears. And then we get upset because we got upset. We began last week examining this, and we noted three things. First, we said anger is just our response when we think something is wrong. Thus, anger in and of itself is not bad, but rather, what do we do when we think something is wrong? And so often, what we do leads to sin. But that led to our second point. Anger can be good. Our aim is not to be dispassionate monks like the Buddhists. Our aim is to be like Jesus. And we saw a couple examples where he became angry. Like at the Pharisees, their coldness of heart. At the death of Lazarus and how that ruptured the lives of Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. And we saw his anger led to not of an out-of-control outburst, but rather it led him to be willing to die to remove sin and death. And it wasn't just Jesus who shows this righteous anger. You could look in the Old Testament at Phinehas in Numbers 25 or Moses, Exodus 32, who were responding to sin angrily but righteously. But we sadly know that often, as we saw third last week, our anger is often truly wretched. We get angry about things that aren't even wrong. The person tapping their fingers, the people who drive slow, your sports team losing, they're not what we want, but... They shouldn't lead to our anger. And sometimes we get angry about things that are truly wrong, but we're not slow to anger like God. Unlike Jesus, we don't control our anger. We lose our self-control and we become vindictive. So how do we combat the sinful anger that rises so quickly in us? Well, to see this today, 
I want to convey three things. First, we have to recognize the roots of our anger. Then we need to replace the ruler in our life. And then we need to repent of our pride. But first, recognizing the roots. You know, one of the problems we have with putting any sin to death, as the Bible talks about killing our sin, is that we only deal with our behavior, the external behavior, and not underlying motivations. This is one of the major premises of the parenting class we're doing right now, shepherding a child's heart. And if you haven't been able to attend, I'd encourage you. It's a really good curriculum on how to parent your children. But often our approach to sin is like someone trying to remove weeds by using a weed whacker. All they do is they go and remove the tops. And yet what will happen? Well, the weeds will just grow right back. To get rid of the weed and not just minimize the weed, you have to dig it out. And to see this, let's flip over to James 4. As I said, we'll be flipping back and forth, so you might want to have something in Ephesians. But James chapter 4, this was read for us earlier, but I'll just highlight some verses. We'll highlight verses 1 and 2 where it says, What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. If we went yesterday to the farmer's market and took a survey and asked people, what causes fights? We would get a lot of surface level issues. Well, people say rude things to one another. People take other people's possessions. People force their way physically. And those actions definitely lead to fights. But why do we say rude things? Why do we steal? Why do we force our way? You know, James points past the external pressure points to the internal ignition switch. And the ignition, he says, is that our passions are at war within us. You know, James immediately explains that we desire something, but we don't get it, so we murder now, in James writing this letter, I don't think he literally thinks the people he's writing to are killing each other. He's rather referring to Jesus' words in Matthew 5, that if you get angry with your brother, it is the same as murder. Thus, Jesus is teaching that unrighteous anger is like murder, and James is building on that. But then James progresses. He paints a picture, and the cycle of our problems begins when our anger or our fights begin with, I desire. And again, We've said this, and I'll emphasize this several times, desires in and of themselves are not a bad thing. You may desire to be liked. You may desire to get good grades or make the team. You may desire a quiet evening with your favorite snacks, your favorite drinks, and what you want to watch. And there's nothing necessarily immoral with any of those things, but the problem is not the desire, but the desire morphs into and becomes I demand. Let me give you a common scenario how this might happen. Take the desire for appreciation for the work you do. That's a good desire. So it's a Saturday. Everyone's gone but you. So you spend the day cleaning the house. You pick up the clothes. You clean all the floors. You wash the dishes. You get the countertops clean. And finally, the house is back in order. You're utterly exhausted but as you look around, you just have this sense of, oh, everything's clean. So you go off to shower, and as you're in there, you hear the door. And everyone comes in, and you finish, and you come out. And then as you come out, to your horror, there's shoes and clothes strung from the door to who knows where. 
And you go in the kitchen and stuff is on the countertops left out from people making food. And you go into the room where they're watching TV and no one turns ahead and they're chewing and food's dropping all over the floor and someone mumbles, so do you even do anything today? Well, it may not be the 4th of July, but probably the fireworks are going to be going off. You know, what's going on? Well, you have a good desire. I want to be appreciated and they aren't showing any at all. Now, again here, the desire to be appreciated is not bad. The family should be more considerate not to drop their clothes or leave food out or to not notice. And the problem becomes when, it becomes when we then demand, you have to appreciate me. You know, when they don't, are we going to lovingly and gently show the true problems that have occurred? Or are we going to rant and rave all, no one ever appreciates what I do around here. And more than that, is it possible that you'll never get the respect and appreciation you deserve on earth? You know, we should notice here that it's not bad to want this. Because what did Jesus tell us? He tells us that his servants will be told one day, well done, good and faithful servants. That's not something that we go, ah, I don't care if Jesus says that. No, we want to hear, well done, we are appreciated. But that well done comes after this life. We don't hear from his lips today, well done, good and faithful servant. You see, we often demand not just the action, but the timing. Consider 1 Peter 2, 19-21's exhortation about suffering unjustly. And it is a form of suffering to not be appreciated. 1 Peter 2 says, For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So to follow in the steps of Christ is not to rage when we suffer unjustly, but being mindful that God will reward us, that he's appreciating it, we follow Christ's example. And so we all have desires, and we have desires that go unfulfilled. So we can do three things. We can change or give up our desire. We can wait and hope that desire is fulfilled, or we can keep seeking to get it. And we could come up with a thousand different scenarios. So we can't say blanketly now, all those desires are good or bad, or you should give it up, or you should keep coming. You need wisdom of God's word to know, should I give this one up? Should I keep seeking it? Or should I change it? But we need to heed James' insight because he's avoiding the simplistic solutions that only cover surface issues. You know, better communication techniques, anger management classes, counting to three or ten or a hundred. Those can offer some help. They do help. However, they're often like band-aids that don't get to the underlying problems. Until you get to the underlying problems, you're only dealing with symptoms. And James wants us to realize that our sinful anger comes from inside of us. Yes, you may have had a horrible upbringing in which everything was just solved by yelling. You might have red hair. You might be Irish. Or you might have some other reason people give to excuse their anger. You might be exhausted, hungry, fighting a headache. You might be tempted by the devil and his demons. And yet James is saying those are not the root causes of your angers. 
those definitely shouldn't be discounted. Those all are pressure points that serve to reveal what's already inside of us. Those make it easier for us to be sinfully angry, but they're not the cause of our anger. Our fights and anger are the deeper problems, and they're revealed by that. So, though we rationalize, well, I never had any anger problems till you were around. It's not them. It's us. They are just the means. They are just the pressure that bring to the surface what was already inside of us. So your boss, your co-worker, your family member, they don't make you angry. They reveal your anger. And so our sinful anger begins with desires, often good desires, that then go to demands. And those demands reveal what ultimately we want to rule our life. You know, we want things to go our way, and we're going to judge you if you break our demands. Thus, we have to stop trying to place ourselves as ruler and replace God as the ruler that he truly is. And James discusses this a few verses later. So look at verse 11 of James 4, because he says in our second section, replacing the ruler. James 4.11 Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So there's an ongoing digression in our heart. Begins with, I desire, I want this. To um, demand, I must have this. To now, an expectation. And then a judgment. And then a punishment. You know, if I demand something, I say, I must have it. And that then creates expectations for others. Since I must have this, then you should do this. You should express thankfulness for all the sacrifices I've made for you. You ought to allow me to decide what the dinner options are. You must allow my day to go the way I hoped. And then, when the other person doesn't meet our expectations, we do what James 4.11 says. We speak evil against one another, brothers. In other words, I become judge. You know, in Jeremy Town, the judge, jury, prosecutioner, and executioner are all the same. So I quickly move to punish. Because thou failest to ask my preference for dinner leftovers, I'll punish you with pouting and silence. Sure, it would be nice to have a steak tonight. You know, when you work hard all day, a little protein would help. Love this dry cornbread. Oh no, I'm fine. This tastes great. I don't care what I get. You know, we have a desire. There's nothing wrong with wanting a steak. But it morphs to demand, and then I quickly expect that you're going to do this and I judge you for not doing it and I punish you. It can be the low-end kind of the silent treatment, the coldness, or it can be the harsh kind, blowing up in rage. But either one of those, our sinful anger is coming out. And we could spend this a hundred ways in which we walk through this progression and we start this very young. You don't give the child the food they want so they throw a fit and throw it from their high chair. The blocks don't stack right, so what do they do? They don't ask you, how do I put these together? They scream, they kick them, they smash them, and they throw a fit. I want my blocks to be organized. I demand they are. It's not meeting my expectations, so I get angry and I yell and scream. I punish the piece of wood. And notice 
James Clear discussion here is about judging things that are outside of God's law. There are law. Judgments that come from us, not God. And I say that's because notice what he writes. He says, The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. In other words, the actions and attitudes they condemn others for are not from God's law. And so in essence, you're saying, look, God, your law isn't good enough. Thus, James adds, but if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? You know, God is the only lawgiver and judge. His verdict leads to salvation and reward or damnation and retribution. Who are we to think that we should go around judging our neighbor? Now, many people in our day misapply this because they don't realize James is dealing with man-made rules. Or they take a similar idea in Matthew 7, do not judge lest you be judged. And they go, yeah, that's right. No one can tell me what to do. But James 4, Matthew 7, are not saying we should leave others alone. Nor are they saying that everyone can choose their own morals and value. Rather, what Jesus is saying in Matthew 7 is that we should remove our own blinders and then help our brother. That's why Jesus says, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's own eye. Jesus' command is to humbly admit our own faults and seek to change before confronting others. You know, what Jesus attacks is hypocritical self-righteousness, not whether you can ever say something is right or wrong. And we know that because even right after that, Jesus calls the Pharisees dogs, which is a strong judgment. And here in James 4, James is discussing when we make laws that go beyond the Bible and then use those to stand in judgment over others. You know, there are some issues in which Christians are free to live differently. Should you only listen to Christian music or can you listen to secular music? Will you be heavily involved in politics or will you only just vote? Should you buy the used car or the new car? And these are all Christian liberties and yet we often pass judgment on others. We take our decisions on these and then feel morally superior to you. Look at those materialistic Christians in their fancy clothes and new car. If they really love Jesus, like me, they'd shop at thrift stores. They'd buy the used car so they could give the extra money to missions. And yet, we're free in Christ to choose how we're going to do those things. And James is condemning that type of judgment where we make laws that are our own decisions. Now, if someone does truly break God's law, then we have two godly options. First, in love, we can follow Proverbs 19.11. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it's this glory to overlook an offense. So every time someone sins against us, we don't have to make them confess. We can do the glorious thing and just overlook it. Or second, also in love, we can talk to them. You know, we should talk to them not just because we're hurt, but because we know their sin ultimately hurts their relationship with God. Yet sadly, we often do neither of those. We neither overlook nor we talk to them. Rather, we just replay in our mind over and over what they did. Or we talk to others about it. We do the opposite of what Ephesians 4.31 says. Flip back to Ephesians 4. Because there, James begins talking in this section about the truth 
then he talks about anger, and then he'll talk about stealing and other things, but then he'll come back to this anger in verse 31 where he writes, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. We see something's wrong, there's a way to handle it, and here are the wrong responses. And that's why also the end of verse 26 says, Do not let the sun go down on your anger. You know, when we have something wrong with someone, we either overlook it or we talk to them. And this is encouraging us, exhorting us to do it as soon as possible. And yet there are many areas in life when we pass judgment on people for something that is our law in the man and not God's. So let me give you another hypothetical because sometimes I think it's helpful to think about how does this happen. Now this didn't really happen, but it's not too far from probably something that has so I got my plan for the day. I know what I'm going to do. It's all worked out. Sarah's got what she's doing, and all of a sudden she says, Ah! I didn't buy this ingredient. Insert the hero Jeremy. I will sacrifice my time. I will go to the store. Now, unbeknownst to anyone else, I quickly write some laws for what's going to happen. Thus saith Jeremy, Thou shalt have the ingredient at the store when I arrive. Thou shalt have no other customers before me in line. Thou shalt make my checkout smooth, timely, and efficient. Thou shalt allow, allow my day to go according to my plan, because I'm a kind of servant who gives my time for others. And I'm probably beating this to death, but none of those in and of themselves are bad. There's nothing wrong with wanting to get through the line quickly. So I go to the store, and lo and behold, they don't have the ingredient. But that's all right. They have it somewhere else. So I walk to the other side of the store. Don't have it there. Okay? So I find that helpful store clerk who's not that helpful, and they walk to the exact same spots that I went to, and they don't have it. So I call Sarah. So then I walk around trying to find the substitute to make sure I get it right, and I go get in line only to get behind the person who goes, can I get a price check on that? And then they turn and smile. I know it's on sale. And I smile back. That's okay. So I finally get the ingredient, I get home. And I'm a little, little frustrated. And then one of my kids says, hey, I got a project tomorrow. I got to go to the store and get a poster board. And while we're out, my shoes are really tight. I got to get some new shoes. Now, with all the laws that I've written in my brain, that they shall have the ingredient when I arrive, that there shall be no other customers before me, that thou shalt appreciate my sacrifices for you, family, I'm probably going to get sinfully angry. Because I've set up all these desires that became demands, that then became expectations, then became judgments, and so then what happens? The punishment. Okay, get in the car. Icy drive to the store. Or... Rage. Ah! No one. And yet, it all began back when I make these desires that become demands. Now again, I'm not saying it's wrong to say, you know, that was pretty unwise to wait till the day before to ask for the poster board. You know, we often make plans and you should have thought about that. And it's not wrong to say, why did you wait until your shoes were like pinched so tight they hurt? You got to plan ahead. So the point is not that we just need to say everything's right with the world, kumbaya. But the problem is we move and we try to take God's place. I'm going to rule the world and what I want needs to happen. 
And so we need to give up our desires and admit that God rules the world. Another way of saying this is that we need to repent of our pride because our pride gets in the way and our pride leads to our anger. Let's flip back again to James 4 for the last time. James 4, look at verses 6 through 10. It says, But he gives more grace. Therefore, says God, opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. You know, our pride causes God to oppose us. But our humility leads him to give us grace. Isaiah 66, verse 2. This is the one to whom I look, God says. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Now, humility is often a misunderstood and undesired trait. Humility is not going around demeaning yourself, telling yourself, you're worthless. That is not what humility is. You know, no human is worthless. We're all made in God's image, and Christ died for us. Yes, we are unworthy of God's love, but we are not worthless. Humility just means having an accurate view of yourself so that you're not pridefully inflated or pridefully depressed, which is still pride. So consider how humility... An honest assessment of ourselves will help tackle anger. First, humility realizes that I am not omniscient, but God is. You know, God knew that when we ran out of the ingredient, the store would not have it. He knew that the store helper would not be much help. And he timed me getting to the line so that I would have to wait. Thus, when I find my internal temperature rising... I have to remind myself, you know, God knew all of this would happen. And that leads to the second one. Second, humility realizes I am not sovereign, but that God is. You know, Ephesians chapter 1, when we study that, it says, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. We look down again at James 4. Come now, you who say, verse 13, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Every plan for my life only happens if the Lord wills. And God has a much better agenda for my day than I do. His timing, His plan, His ways are perfect. So why would I think when my plans are derailed, that I'd plan a better day for myself than God had? When I grow frustrated that my plans are not happening, I must humbly turn to the one who has better plans in my life and are coming to pass. Third, humility recognizes I was made for God. As we read through Ephesians 1, we saw over and over that it said, 
to the praise of his glory. God did such and such for the praise of his glory. For example, Ephesians 1.12, we who were the first to hope in Christ so that we might be to the praise of his glory. You know, our anger arises when I'm not being recognized for how great I am. It's all about me. But when I recognize, look, life's not about me, it's about him, then my anger can be turned away. You know, pride wants my name to be great. Pride wants my plans. Humility says, I'm here to exalt God. I'm here to live the life that he is guiding for me. And fourth, humility realizes that God does all of this for our blessing. Flip back to Ephesians. You know, Ephesians, we saw back in verse chapter 1, verse 3. Notice what it says. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God does all the things for His glory, yes, but also He does them all to bless us. He's lavished us with love, peace, forgiveness, adoption, and eternal inheritance. He has prepared good works for us to walk in them. All for our good. He wants to bless us so that my life doesn't go the way I want. He has something better. And flip over to chapter 3, verse 13, because there Paul is talking about his suffering. And he says, Ephesians 3.13, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. You know, God uses suffering. He uses our plans getting derailed. He uses things that we don't want to happen for our good and his glory. So when I humbly remember these things, God's omniscient, God is sovereign, God is working things for his glory, God's working things for my good, it can diffuse the ticking time bomb going on inside of me. You know, we're going to sing here in a minute the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. You know, it says, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rises upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he fashions up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. You know, his sovereign will, his designs are the one that are good for us. And so it then says, you fearful saints, fresh courage take the clouds that you much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. So as our anger starts to rise, we have to realize, God, I need humility. You knew this was going to happen. You're planning what's going on. You have some way that this is for your glory, and you're using this, though it may be very hard, for your good. Everything, whether it be a slow driver, a bill that you didn't expect, a child you've corrected three times already this day, the specific temptations you face, every one of those, God is in charge of them. So we must humble ourselves and trust that his plans are better 
infinitely better than ours. So humility helps us trust God's plan, and also it's the only source to change, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And what good news that God helps the humble. It doesn't say that God helps the churchgoer, or the good Samaritan, or the faithful spouse, or the kind neighbor. Those are all good things to be, and I hope that you seek to do those. Yet you can do every single one of those and be proud that you do them. God helps the humble. Those who admit their inability, their desperate need for help. You see, humility looks outside ourselves and ultimately looks for help through Christ. You may not hear this at any graduation speech, but you don't have this. You can't do this on your own power. You will not be able to achieve this on your own. You need God's help to kill your anger. And God gives grace to the humble. In 1962, the City Council of Centralia, Pennsylvania, discussed how to take care of their almost overflowing extra landfill. They decided that on May 27, 1962, the fire department would light it on fire. Thankfully, the fire reduced everything to ash, and with a good soaking from their hoses, the fire department's job was done. Or so they thought, for two days later, the flames had kicked up again. So they went back out, doused it down, and no big deal, the fire's out. Until a week later, the flames are back. This time they got a little more serious, and they got a bulldozer and dug all the ashes out, and to their horror, they realized the people that had made the landfill had left a hole 15 feet wide and many feet deep, and this is especially dangerous because Centralia set on the top of miles of coal tunnels that had been dug out. The fire had got into the mines, and though the state twice came with very drastic measures to put the fire out, it is still not out today. And they estimate it'll still burn for 200 more years. The town is now a ghost town, and everything is gone, or all the people are gone. You know, some of us treat our anger like the fire department first did when they saw the flames reignite. We'll just hose it back down, we'll get rid of it. But until they got to the heart of the fire, until we get to the heart of our anger, until we get below the surface, down to the heart, we will never get rid of our anger. We can tell ourselves, we can tell our kids a hundred times, stop being angry. But that's not going to remove our rage. Merely knowing how destructive your anger is won't remove your rage. Rather, we must dig out the roots of where our actions come from. We must confess our pride and desire to be God and rule our life. We have to humble ourselves and entrust ourselves into God's hands. And so may God give us grace to have the humility that entrusts ourselves to his care. Let's pray. Oh Lord, it is so easy to think that we have it, that we have perfect plans for our life, that we have the way to fix the problems in our life, and yet, Lord, we don't. Would you give us the humility that turns to you, the humility that trusts you? Would you help us to put to death the anger that dishonors you and ruins our life? Lord, we thank you for your good fatherly care for us. Would we trust you today? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.